Blessed are you, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and has commanded us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Please, Adonai, our God, sweeten the words of your Torah in our mouth and the mouth of your people, the house of Israel. May we and our offspring and the offspring of your people, the house of Israel, all of us know your name and study your Torah for its own sake. Bless Yudanai, who teaches Torah to his people, Yisrael. Amen. I want to begin by sharing just something, a quick little insight I happened to see while we were reading. This is from Parasha Korak, I believe it is. Let me see if I can find it right quick, turn back to it. Um, not Korak, Slika. Hukat. And it has to do when, with Moshe striking the rock. To verse 11, chapter 20 and verse 11, it says, Then Moshe raised his arm and struck the rock with his staff twice. Abundant water came out, and the assembly and their animals drank. Just a real quick, in the notes of the Kumash, it says, Moshe reasoned that if he had found the proper rock, speaking would suffice, but since he could not find that rock, he thought that he would strike a different one, following the precedent of Exodus when he performed the miracle of striking the stone. Otherwise, he reasoned, why had God commanded him to take the staff with him? And so what ends up happening is he strikes the rock, not just any rock. It turns out that is the rock, so he ends up hitting the Mashiach. But what I wanted to point out with that was that Moshe did not recognize the Messiah. And because he did not r recognize him, he struck him and said, water come out. So when we do not recognize the Mashiach, we end up striking him and say, prophesy to us, Rabbi, who is hitting you? And so it just goes to show you that just if Moshe himself could not recognize the Mashiach, you say, well, Israel doesn't recognize the Mashiach. If Moshe himself could not recognize the Mashiach. All right, so we have, and by the way, this is, it's not as if this was, the, it was a, a particular rock that was falling. You would think that after 40 years, you would come to know the rock. The rock of my salvation, right? Parasha, uh, we're in Parasha. This week we were in Parasha, Hukat, and Belak. This year... Hukant and Balach were a double portion, Parashah. Today, we're going to be looking at our journey through Genesis. We're, should, we're going to be, should be reading chapter 33 and chapter 34. For the sake of time, I'm, going, I'm not going to read both chapters, but I'm going to read uh, the last part of 33 and into 34. But what is interesting is chapter 33 has to do with Jacob meeting Esau. And Mikael actually has a really good illumination about this, and maybe at some point he'll be able to share it. I'm not going to dwell on that. But then with chapter 34 is about uh, the abduction of Dina and the encounter of Shechem, and I'm going to be speaking about that, Bezrat Hashem, uh, this morning. But I thought it was interesting that if you look at the correlation between the double portion of Hukat and Belach to this chapter 33 and chapter 34. In chapter 33, we have, in Hukat, we have this issue of the ashes of the red heifer that make the preparer impure, but make the one who's impure, pure. So if you think about it like this, the one who's preparing the ashes of the red heifer is a pure Kohen. But in preparation to make that very important mixture, the pure becomes impure. 
so that somebody who is impure can become pure. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteous of God. So here you have Jacob, who's pure, who ends up lying and deceiving his father and becomes impure and becomes an exile, an outcast, and goes through this big drama. His whole life is drama. No one has drama like Jacob. When you get to Shemayim and you're sitting around talking about your life and how it was filled with drama, Jacob's going to walk in the room. He's going to kick the bar stool out from underneath you. He's going to take that whiskey bottle out of your hand and say, let me tell you about drama. Okay? And yet we have now Esau, or excuse me, uh, Jacob, who has, has, who, he's like the red heifer. He's become impure to meet Esau, the impure, so that he can make Esau pure. Because ultimately Jacob is going to make Esau pure. And then we have Parashah Balak, which is all about Balaam and Balak trying to curse the children of Israel. And so in the next chapter in 34, we have the people of Shechem who are really ultimately trying to bring a curse on the people. And we end up having the sons of Israel take care of business and wipe them out, just like we end up taking care of business and wiping out Midian, the Midianites. So there's an interesting correlation but I want to begin reading in chapter 33, uh, beginning in verse 18, and we'll read through 34. It says, Jacob arrived intact. It's very important wording there in the Torah. Jacob arrived intact at the city of Shechem. You can understand everything that Jacob has been through. Remember, he lied to his father. He became a, really an outcast as a result of, of that. He had to flee his home, really, because of uh, his brother Esau. And then remember, his nephew caught up with him, and his nephew was going to kill him. And he told his nephew, like, don't kill me, just take my stuff, and I'll be as good as dead. So he ends up finding uh, Rachel, and he has nothing but, you know, the, the shirt on his back and a staff in his hand. That's all he has. And yet he, and he goes through all of that drama and all that trial. He ends up meeting Esau with the 400, but actually there's an insight that says that, that Esau had 400 kings with him who themselves each had 400 soldiers. So it was, a much, it was potentially a much larger situation, a much bigger situation than he, had, he, he was facing. In other words, Jacob was facing death and the loss of everything he had, yet he arrives intact at the city of Shechem. Now he arrives at the city of Shechem, and he's got uh, he's got some uh, some shorts on and sneakers. He's got his retirement hat. He's 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 come to Club Shechem. He's gonna he's gonna this is his, his drama in his life is over. He's got kids. He's got his wives. He's 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 setting up you know the little uh, pool bar. He wants to swim to the pool bar and get a you know margarita or a pina colada. And relax. But that's not how it goes down. But he arrives intact at the city of Shechem, which is the land of Canaan. Upon his arriving from Padan Aram and encamped before the city, he bought the parcel of the land upon which he pitched his tent from the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 kesats. He set up an altar there and proclaimed, God, the God of Israel. When he says the God of Israel, he's talking about himself. God, you are my God. Here's the altar. Here's my plot of land. I've got my RV, and I'm ready to just relax. 
Chapter 34. Now Dina. Now Dina, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to look over the daughters of the land. Shechem, son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the region, saw her. He took her. He lay with her, and he violated her. Basically, he raped her. So here's Jacob just got set up in his retirement community. He's just got his RV, all the, you know, everything's set up in the RV. He's getting ready to start barbecuing, and his daughter gets raped. He thought that Esau, it was, everything was over with with Esau. He thought this, I mean, that's like the climactic battle, and now this. He came, he became, this guy became deeply attached to Dina, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the maiden and appealed to the maiden's emotions. So Shechem spoke to Hamor, his father, saying, take me this girl for a wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dina while his sons were with the cattle in the field. So Jacob kept silent until their arrival. Hamor, Shechem's father, went out to Jacob to speak with him. And Jacob's son arrived from the field, and when they heard, the men were distressed and were fired deeply with indignation, for he had committed an outrage in Israel by lying with a daughter of Jacob. Such a thing may not be done. Hamor spoke with him, saying, Shechem, my son, longs deeply for your daughter. Please give her to him as a wife, and intermarry with us. Give us your daughters to us, and take our daughters for yourselves. And among us you shall dwell. The land will be before you. Settle, trade in it, acquire a property in it. Then Shechem said to her father and brothers, Let me gain favor in your eyes, and whatever you tell me I will give. Inflate exceedingly upon me the marriage settlement and gifts, and I will give whatever you tell me. Only give me the maiden for a wife. Now Jacob's sons answered Shechem and his father Hamor cleverly, and they spoke because he had defiled their sister Dina. They said to him, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to a man who is uncircumcised, for that is a disgrace for us. Only on this condition will we acquiesce to you. If you become like us by letting every male among you become circumcised, then we will give our daughter to you and take your daughters to ourselves. We will dwell with you and become a single people. But if you will not listen to us to be circumcised, we will take our daughter and go. Their proposal seemed good in the view of Hamor and in the view of Shechem, Hamor's son. The youth did not delay doing the thing, for he wanted Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most respected of all the father's household. Hamor with his son Shechem came to the gate of the city and spoke to the people of their city, saying, These people are peaceful with us. Let them settle in the land and trade in it. For see, there is ample room in the land for them. Let us take their daughters for ourselves as wives and give our daughters to them. Now, the inside story in all this is that they didn't really want to convert. It really wasn't about that. They, he was just convincing the people that, listen, if we do this, then everything that Jacob has, which is a lot, will become ours. It was really about greed. We just want to take their stuff. We want to assimilate them into our culture. Most likely, circumcision in this case would have been a, this generation only. The next generation would not have continued on. And what would have happened to Jacob and his sons had they done this? They would have just been assimilated into the people of Shechem, and then that would have been it. Only on this condition will the people acquiesce with us to dwell with us to become a single people. Now, what's the motivation of the prince? He just wants the girl. That's all he wants. 
So it says uh, and that, that all of our males become circumcised as they themselves are circumcised. Their livestock, their possession, and all their animals, will, will they not be ours? If we do this, if we just go, through, I said on the Aliyah day, we just go through the little recipe, we check the little boxes, this will be ours, right? Only let us acquiesce to them, and they will settle with us. Only let us acquiesce to them, and they will settle with us. All the people who debart through the gate of this city listened to Amor and his son Shechem, and all the males, all's, all those who depart through the gate of the city were circumcised. And it came to pass on the third day when they were in pain that two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dina's brothers, each took his sword and they came unto the city confidently and killed every male. And Hamor and Shechem, his sons, they killed at the point of the sword. Then they took Dina from Shechem's house and left. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain, and they plundered the city which they had defiled their sister, their flocks, their cattle, their donkeys, whatever was in the town, and whatever was in the field they took. And all their wealth and all their children and their wives they took captive, and they plundered as well as everything in the house. And Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have discomposed me, making me odious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and among the Pezzarites. I am few in number, and should they band together and attack me, I will be annihilated, I and my, I and my household. And they said, should, should he treat our sister like a harlot? It's the end of chapter 34. We see Jacob still had some challenges with his Amuna. As I just got through saying, he had just overcome uh, Esau, and his 400, but then it could have been 400 times 400. And Jacob is still having issues. Jacob has become, is becoming my favorite patriarch because he has the most drama in his life, not that my life is necessarily full of drama, but I appreciate the fact that Jacob is presented over and over again as a flawed person. And yet he's esteemed as one of the greatest of all the patriarchs in terms of what he brought to the table. I want to share a little bit of an aside here. This is something I read in uh, Rebbeinu Bakya, talking about the third day. It was the third day when they were in, in pain. I, I read this in Rebbeinu Bakya, and I thought, wow. Now, this goes along with a thought I have. I'm, I'm really, I want you to know, these last few weeks, I have, it's, uh, I've, I've built restraints in my office to tie my arms and legs down and to gag my mouth because I've refrained from commenting much at all about the statue and the Confederacy issue. <clears throat> the statues and the Confederacy. I've done everything I can to refrain from commenting on this. My wife said, ta-da. Because, as many of you know, for 15 years of, oh, by the way, I meant to mention this far off the bat. I forgot. So we've celebrated our, our anniversary. We went out of town. We had a little hoopa thing going on. But actually today is our anniversary, like the 4th of July. 25 years. So today is the actual anniversary. And so, Baruch Hashem, I got married on Independence Day. Y'all just caught it. But for 15 years of those 25 years, we were deep in Civil War 
living history, Civil War history. And so it was, it's really paved the way for all this, and I won't get into all that. But as I said earlier, what I know about Civil War history, I did not get from high school history class. I didn't get from college history class. I didn't get from YouTube or the Internet and the nightly news. What I know about it is because I read books, many of which are out of print, many of which were written by people who were actually there. That's always born of one, right? That you want to, like the, the people who fought the war, it's good to know what they thought about it versus Professor uh, Jackboot over here who, uh, you know, who, who just want to give you his opinion versus reading the people who were actually there. I have a book called The R.E. Lee Reader. It's all of Robert E. Lee's personal memoirs and people that knew him for, as his close friends that wrote about him in that book. You, I, I think you could buy it now for a few hundred dollars. It's out of print. Um, and so I, my wife got me, a, an, I have an original print, an 1888 original print of a book called Christ in the Camp, which was actually written by Robert E. Lee's chief of chaplains. And he writes about Lee, Jackson, all the famous names. So anyway, and uh, we have lots and lots of also other things deep, deep into it. So I, there's lots of information I know, and I just want to tell you something. I don't want to get too, too into it because, first of all, it's not politically correct, and people think I'm a racist and all this kind of stuff. Clearly I'm not. Y'all know that, right? Okay, just making sure. Um, <clears throat> um, but everything you think you know about the Civil War isn't right. And so just leave it at that. Um, but I want you to notice something, because I'm reading this, and I'm thinking the third day. So it made me think about why the, why the forces of darkness do what they do. Why they pick the third day. Think about what's going on in our country. The forces of darkness, the people that are out there. Now, I'm not going to say every single people, but I'm, I'm going to say what you see with CHOP and Seattle and the people that are vandalizing and looting and everything. What they stand for, okay, you think it's about race relations, has nothing to do with that whatsoever. What they stand for is, is homosexuality. They stand for abortion. They stand for taking God out of everything. They stand for anti-America. They stand for Stalin, for Lenin. They stand for communism. They stand for oppression. They, they stand for, um, uh, you know, basically jackbooted thugs, uh, Nazism. They stand for all that. Now, I want you to see that group of people, the Marxists, what are they trying to tear down? What are they trying to tear down? Try to tear down some statues. Say, well, you know, they're trying to start with Robert E. Lee, started with some other Confederate monuments, and then now, now, there's, now it's Washington, now it's Columbus, Jefferson, uh, you know, that type of thing. Think about it. Think about, think about what the forces of darkness are trying to destroy in your, in, in your life. All these people I just mentioned are some of the greatest Americans that this country's ever produced. Robert E. Lee is the most upstanding, one, one of the top five most upstanding Americans that ever walked the, this ground. But by the way, he was in command of cavalry in Texas right before the war. So, and he was stationed in San Antonio. Colonel Lee. Um, so was James Longstreet. Some of the great salt of the earth people, people that are upstanding. And Robert E. Lee, by the way, was against slavery and was against secession. 
Stonewall Jackson was against slavery, was not for it at all. But you say, well, they fought for the Confederacy. Yeah, because it wasn't about slavery. Oh, ah, uh, that doesn't make sense. The people that are against slavery and the people that fought on the northern side were not necessarily trying to free the slaves. So why do they fight if it was a war with slavery? Exactly. So you just got to learn some stuff. Then you'll, you'll understand what's going on. Okay? It was about honor. But I won't get into all that. So what are they trying to pull down? So it says here, ex, and if experts of a science known as Tycoon, uh, excuse me, that from uh, Midrash Tycoona wrote that the third day is the day under the influence of the horoscope cancer, which in turn is presided over by Samuel. That's Hasatan, cursed be he. So the third day of the week is the third day that is presided over by the enemy. Now, it's going to get a little bit interesting here because you're thinking the third day of the week, but this is talking about the third day of the universal week, the third day after the creation of Adam, which is this. Samuel's personal servant is the planet Mars. Isn't it interesting? There's a gigantic church Tens of thousands of people that the name of the church is Mars Hill. So it says here, this knowledge prompted our sages, Tani 27, to decree that the Anasei Maimod, the Israelites representing the people every day in the temple, were not to ever fast on Sunday, the first, which is the first day of the week, as this was the third day after Adam had been created on Friday, the sixth day of the week. So that in counting a completed universe this day was actually the third day. This is also the reason we take some fragment, fragrant plants at the conclusion of the Shabbat and pronounce a benediction over it, them as the third day is ushered in, and we want to face it having performed an additional mitzvah. Our spiritual self is strengthened by means of the pleasant fragrance. So I just want to point this out. I thought it was interesting. So you think, well, why is it? I mean, really, you know, we have Shabbat as the, as the Sabbath, but why was Sunday supplanted, supplant Shabbat? Why not some other day? Why was it specifically that day? That's why. That's why. Because it's the opposite. It's the Esau to the Jacob. Now, wh where was Dina? What, what's this issue with Dina? By, well, before I share that, let me, let me share this from Rabbi Monk. It says, I said to the joyous ones, this is a comment to the... Uh, first verse, now Dina went out. I said to the joyous ones, cease your rejoicing. It says, our sages cite this verse from Psalm 75.5 to introduce the account which follows. Joy, they tell us, does not last. And after mentioning the examples of Adam, Abraham, and Isaac, they show how Jacob, who had overcome the terrible trials of the past 20 years and believed that at last he was going to be able to find happiness at the end of the last chapter, suddenly faced a setback in his destiny. His household is subjected to a succession of calamities, the rape of his daughter, Rachel's premature death, and Joseph's disappearance. His father Isaac had experienced a very, very similar fate. Nevertheless, if we consider the historic mission of Jacob's family, we can grasp Rabbi Monk writes, the meaning of the new trial. This people, which is called on to be a nation of priests and the standard bearer for God on earth, 
had to experience a moral outrage upon its own flesh and blood right from its beginnings. It had to undergo this ordeal so that the world could see in its swift and ruthless reaction the sacred character of this ideal of purity. In other words, it says here, it had to suffer this outrage so it could be, could, so it could be hardened to steel of the nation's soul for all time. In other words, Jacob is having to go through all of these trials, more, far more so than, than the uh, two other patriarchs, because he was establishing a nation. And that nation had to be forged and like, like, you, like you forge steel. How do you forge steel? You take steel and you put it into the fire and you get it red hot. You bring it out and you use a hammer and an anvil and you beat on it. And then you stick it in there and get it red hot. And you do that over and over again. Stick it in the water, put it back in the fire, beat on it. And it hardens the steel and makes it something worthwhile. If you just took the steel and try to just don't do any of that, just turn it into a sword, it, it's, it's soft it's pliable, it's going to break, it's not going to be worth anything. You have to put it in the fire, beat on it, cool it, put it in the fire, beat on it, cool it. Somebody says, you're talking about my life, Rabbi. Yeah. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. You have to go through some trials, you have to go through some tribulations, and that's what our country has been through. So this today's drosh is kind of going back and forth between this and the 4th of July and your life and this and the 4th of July and your life. This is what our country's been through. It's what you've been through, and the whole purpose is to make us tough and strong. The problem is, in our present generation, we want everything to be light and easy. A constant vacation, a constant getaway. We don't want to do anything. We want to, uh, we want to take a pill and automatically look like Schwarzenegger. Take this one little pill three times a day and you'll walk around like this. Don't have to go to the gym. Are you crazy? You ludicrous? It's insane. Like I said this morning, we want our past to continually define us. The idea is you'll never make it. You'll never make it. You'll never make it. You know, they say that to you in boot camp. When you get to boot camp, they tell you right off the bat, you're never going to make it. We were looking for a few good men, and unfortunately, we had to find you. And you ain't it. The whole purpose of that is to make you think, I can make this. I can do this. It's to see, to see which of those guys or women are going to press through and say, I'm going to make it. And it's, unfortunately, it's very, very few. In, in any, really, in any branch of service. So we have the whole issue with chapter 34 here is what I'm trying to get to, is the hardening of a nation, to make a nation stand strong. Now, I just want to say that I have very strong beliefs about, particularly, about history in general, the love of this country, but I have very strong beliefs about the Civil War, and it's, it was a very complicated conflict, it did involve a question of slavery, no doubt. James Longstreet said we should have freed the slaves and fired on Fort Sumter. Patrick Cleburne, little, you don't know much about him. He was a division commander in the Army of the Tennessee. One, he was the Stonewall Jackson of the West. He was from Ireland. And Patrick Cleburne said we should free the slaves and make them soldiers. He wanted to set them free and help them to fight for us. The Confederacy was the most diverse army in human history, by the way. It was the first army in the, on the American continent to have black officers, Mexican-American officers, 
Native American officers, Jewish officers, and Jewish people in, in high levels of government. There's a whole book called The Jews of the Confederacy. The Macy brothers were officers in the Confederacy. I know, you don't know anything about any of that. It was the first army in the, in the, um, on the American continent to have interracial units, blacks and whites, Hispanics, all fighting together. In the North, they were all separated. You don't know anything about that. I'm trying not to get off, and my wife, she's, she's very nervous right now. <clears throat> um, but I want to tell you something. I'm very passionate about it, and this is what I want to tell you something. I, if, you know, I'm very passionate about it. I'm not timid about it at all. I believe what I believe, and I, my, what I believe is based on intense education. And I'm not going to, I'm confident, I'm not going to, you say, well, I, don't, I can't follow you because you believe that way. Okay. Okay. Um, Dina, Leah's daughter went out and said, what happened to Dina? What is the issue? What's the punishment of Yaakov? Why does this go on like this? It says, where was Dina? The report in the Torah alerts us to the fact that Jacob had hidden Dina in a box so that Esau would not become aware of her. Now this is a very important commentary here. Jacob was scared that Dina, who was very pretty, that Esau would want to marry Dina. So he put Dina in a box because he didn't want Dina to become the wife of Esau. God said to Jacob, because you did not make an effort for her to marry a circumcised male, she will become married to an uncircumcised male. Now, you have to understand Esau was circumcised, right? Because Esau's father was Israel. I mean, Isaac, rather. Now, Esau was a total heathen. Now, this is the, this is the whole thing where God's brings impurity from purity and so on. Because here you have Esau who's circumcised, whose his whole religious life is a big, hot mess. But his God is the God of Abraham. Now it's a messed up. It, his religion is terrible. But he believes in the God of Abraham. And Shechem... Shechem's is an idolatry society. They, who knows what idols they worship? They're uncircumcised. They're totally outside. And God said, listen, I wanted Dina to become Esau's wife because Dina, excuse me, Esau is circumcised. He, I am his God. Now, he's a hot mess and all messed up. But Dina could have brought him back to the true faith. But because you didn't extend a hand, in this case, your daughter, to bring him and make him a, a convert to the true faith, that's why you're suffering like this. This is You didn't want to give her to him, so I'm going to give her to this other guy over here. And that's why she was abused the way that she was. So we go to the Midrash Rabbah, and just to, to, to by the way, there's another insight I think it came from Rabbi Monk's commentary. 
of when ends up when it, what ends up happening to Dina though, because it's it's not all a bad story. So Dina, it says a, Dina became the wife of Job. Remember Job. Dina became the wife of Job, who was Esau's grandson. From ba, this is from Baba Basra 15a. In addition, Rabbi Eliezer says that Dina. Pregnant from Shechem, gave birth in her father's house to a daughter who was named Osnath. And to protect her from the hostility of his sons, because he was afraid maybe because she was the daughter of this Shechem guy, Jacob sent Osnath to Egypt where she stayed in the house of Potiphar, and Potiphar adopted her. And later, Jerry, Jerry, excuse me, Jerry, that was her cousin. Later, Joseph met her there, Jerry. Later, Joseph married there, and he would marry her at Pharaoh's command. So all this came for the good. So Dina goes off and marries Job and converts him to the faith, and then Job becomes this great man of faith. Meanwhile, the daughter that she had because of the situation ends up going to Egypt. Everybody forgets about her. She'll become nothing or whatever. She ends up marrying Joseph and giving birth to Manasseh and Ephraim and became this great dynasty. So, again, we never know how things are going to work out in our life. We never know what the, the, all the adversity that we face in our life, we never know how it's going to eventually end up. Now, just a couple of quick things. Jacob arrived intact. Remember I said that. The Midrash Shabbat says, a song of ascents. Remember how we always say, all of you who cling to Hashem are alive today? Do you realize that we say that, sometimes we say things and we don't really give it much thought. All of you who cling to Hashem are all alive today. We say that every single week. God is giving us the secret to success. Cling to Hashem. <laughs> it didn't say all of you who live a perfectly righteous life are all alive today. It didn't say all of you who never make any mistakes are all alive today. It didn't say all of you who look the part and are super Jew are all alive. All of you who have a huge library, you're all alive today. All of you who are white, all of you who are brown, all of you who are black. You're all, no. It said all of you who cling to Hashem. Sometimes we just need to talk to God and say, I, I cling to you. I don't even know what to do. I don't know what to say. I don't know how to be. I just cling to you. What can I do? Take me where you want to. Drag me behind your chariot. Go, God, I'm just clinging to you. Like Indiana Jones under the truck. Jacob arrived intact. A song of ascents. Much have they harassed me since my youth. Psalm 129.1. Let Israel declare now the Holy One blessed as he was saying to Jacob, and have they been able to do anything against you? Jacob then said to God, much have they harassed me since my youth. Also, they were unable against me. So in other words, they were trying their best, but they weren't able to do it. The Midrash has... has a wonderful statement here, and I just want to kind of work through this. I, it's a little bit long, but it says here, 
The Midrash expounds the passage in Psalms as Jacob's prayer of thanks. All his life, he was a target of harassment by his enemies. He thanks God and sings his praises for rescuing him and allowing him to come to no harm. The Dubno Majid illuminates our Midrash ex exposition. The verse in Psalms refers to the Midrash read in full, a song of ascents, much have they harassed me since my youth. Let Israel declare now, much have they harassed me since my youth. Also they were unable against me. The next verse says, on my back, the plowers plowed, they lengthened their furrow. The two questions on the passage it writes presents themselves according to the Midrash expedition. Why, when Jacob expands his original praise, does he reiterate the words, much have they harassed me since my youth, which he had already stated in the preceding verse. Second, what is the connection between Jacob's response and his next statement, on my back, plowers plowed, they lengthened their furlough. So the Majid explains using one of his characteristic parables, a doctor prescribes a particular medicine for a seemingly healthy man. Upon taking this medicine, the healthy man becomes greatly weakened and confined to bed. The doctor therefore prescribes another medication that restores the man to his original health. Reason would dictate that the man does not owe much gratitude to the doctor for healing him, why it was the doctor who made him ill in the first place. But, what if it turns out that the doctor had really detected an, a, an incipient disease in the man that was yet showing no symptoms? And the doctor knew that the disease would not become evident until the man was too old to endure the necessary treatment. So, he brought the disease to the forefront while the man was still young enough to tolerate the treatment that would heal him. In that case, the man must be grateful to the doctor, even for initially making him ill, for that was the only way he could become ultimately cured. In that case, the man must be doubly grateful for the doctor, to the doctor, both for initially afflicting him and for subsequently healing him. The, the affliction was then the vehicle through which the cure was affected. So it was with our forefather Jacob, whose life experiences created the roadmap for the experience of his progeny throughout history. Jacob had paved the way for dealing with the adversity that his descendants would eventually encounter. These had to be dealt with in the youth of our nation, in the life of the patriarch himself. Jacob was strong enough to endure the adversity and develop the means over, of overcoming it. As the nation aged, it would then already have the tools at its disposal to deal with all the trials and tribulations it would encounter in the course of its turbulent history. Thus, in response to God's challenge to him, have they been able against you? Jacob conceded that he had been fully protected from them. He and his progeny would forever be able to overcome because of what he had endured. His distress had been the vehicle for that ability. He was now doubly grateful, both for the initial distress and for the subsequent salvation. And so he reiterated, much have they harassed me since my youth, and that is why they were unable against me. Jacob endured hardship and trial like this so that we as a nation would learn from that and be able to endure hardship and trial. But what if we erased 
Jacob's history. What if we pull down his statue? What if we try to pretend that all the mistakes he made didn't exist? Get him out of public view. We don't want to focus on him anymore. It's too painful. Well, then we eliminate the very cure that brings us the ability to work through adversity. See, our nation went through some things when it was young that if we went through those things today, shoot. I'm sorry, young people, don't get mad at me, but I can't imagine you storming the, the beaches of Normandy. I hope you prove me wrong someday, but right now I don't have a lot of confidence. Especially today when we just we get scared of our own shadow. And back then some guys got off some boats with machine guns blasting in their face. Knowing the first wave of those guys that hit the beach that day, they knew they were all going to die, every single one of them. And guess what? They got on the boat. And I give him props. I pray I would have got on the boat. I would have told my buddy, if I don't get on the boat, shoot me in the back. But what if we got rid of all of Jacob's history, all the bad things, all the mistakes? We don't want to hear about David. We don't want to hear about David and Bathsheba. That's just too, I don't want to contemplate that anymore. Let's, let's whitewash it. Let's get it. Let's, 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 let's get rid of it. I don't want to focus on it. You know, we wouldn't have what we need to be able to move forward. That's the danger of erasing your past. You say, I don't want to focus on my past. Sometimes you need that past because that's what gives you strength. Say, I want to, Rabbi, I wish I didn't have a testimony. That is your testimony. If you didn't have that life, you wouldn't have anything to look back on and say, yes, I went through that. Don't tear down that statue. Keep it right there in front of you. So you'll always know, yeah, that was what I went through. And be proud of it. You know, we say we make a lot of jokes about France. You know, a lot of it after Napoleon, their, their flag became a white background with a white cross. The French have not, since Napoleon, the French have not proven themselves great fatters. But the French president stood up and said, we're not taking anything down. Because we're going we're gonna to keep it right there in front of us, good, bad, and indifferent, so that we never forget who, where, we, where, we, where we were, where, how far we've come, and who we are today. And I've never been more proud of France. So in enduring, it says, so much suffering, Jacob was like a field that is beaten and plowed, only to produce a bountiful crop that would not have grown otherwise. His suffering prepared the ground for the great success of his nation. Thus he added, on my back, the plowers plowed. They lengthened their furrows. They suffered. Their, their suffering was but a way of laying the groundwork for the great success to follow. So here's the final thing. I'm going to con conclude with this. All too often, one suffering is but a small piece of a much larger puzzle. The piece by itself seems jagged. And amorphous, but when all the pieces fall into place, what emerges is a picture of beauty that would be incomplete were any of the pieces missing.
Don't let anybody tear, tear down those statues in your life to the jagged pieces. Now, I could wax eloquently about the statues and why they're not what people make them out to be, but let's just presume the worst. Don't let anybody take those areas of your life and say, well, I don't, let's just take that. Because if our life was just a bed of roses and, and no mistakes and perfect, that's not, that's not where growth is, ladies and gentlemen. Growth comes from adversity. Growth comes from trial and tribulation. You're not, muscle, if you just sit there and do nothing and sit on the couch and play Xbox, your muscles will deteriorate. Thermodynamics, you ever been a house that's lived in? People don't do much to the house, they do a little bit, you know, but it's lived in, it, it works. They move out and nobody lives in the house and thermodynamics takes over, it, and it, like in a few years it's dilapidated. No one's out there uh, putting new paneling on the house or new painting the brick every day when the house you live in. And yet, it seems when it's lived in, when doors are being shut and AC's on and off and all this kind of stuff, it seems to survive. But when nobody's touching it, it atrophies. Nobody ever went to the gym and just stuck, stuck lifting a blank bar their entire life in the gym and walked out looking like Schwarzenegger. If you want to grow muscle, you got to make it hard. It's got to burn. If it doesn't burn when you leave, you've wasted your time. If you don't leave, if you, if you leave the gym and you're not a little, your muscles aren't burning, you've just wasted an hour. You should have been doing something else. If you're not hot and sweaty, <laughs> you just wasted your time. Why? Because ad adversity grows. And the problem with our culture today is nobody wants adversity. We want it easy. Take it easy. Take it easy. Uh-uh. That's not what Jacob did. So don't let him tear it down. Let's learn from it and build it up. Amen? Baruch haba Shem Adonai.